Well, good morning. I was hoping to sleep in, but uh, Jerry just insisted that I show up. So, Everybody ready for our last day? Last day for you, last lecture for me. I was told that uh, the way I treated Robbie yesterday, this will be... <laughs> This will be the last time I'll be up here. <laughs> yeah, you're surprised to see me this morning, huh? Enjoying the weather here. It's kind of cool. We're a little disoriented. We're looking for the mountains. We're hoping to see the mountains, but <clears throat> too overcast, I guess. Well, we're going to continue. This is part two on our Genesis 10 through 11, the scattering that we have in uh, the early chapters of Genesis. Last time we were looking at the text itself, somewhat uh, laying a foundation, mainly for some of these implications. And I think when we come to Scripture, there is a lot there. I don't want to detract from the text, but the Lord has packed a lot, I believe, in every passage. It's inexhaustible, not that there are many interpretations, but uh, within that interpretation, there's a lot of implications. And some of the implications we're going to focus on uh, this morning. So I gave you an introduction. I gave you the uh, the context of the passage very briefly. Spend a little time in the text itself, Genesis 11. And the main emphasis is we have some more beginnings. Genesis is the book of beginnings, beginnings of all things, chapter 1. And then throughout, we have the beginning of sin as a result of man and choices that uh, man makes. Genesis 10 and 11, we have the beginnings of languages, plural, not language, singular, And then also we have the beginning of nations. So last time we took a look at uh, one of the implications dealing with languages. And we laid a foundation for all study in the whole area of linguistic and languages. So we want to continue looking at implications and focus on uh, the origin of the nations and some of the things that we can draw from this passage that lays another foundation for the nations. One of the problems that we have uh, as conservatives is the time frame, the chronology. And what I've got here is Harold Honer's basically, uh, he used to offer a course in chronology, and this is about as tight and about as conservative as you can get in terms of chronology. And I mention this because we are somewhat in conflict, even within conservative Bible teaching, people that uh, depend on the archaeology and the historians. The traditional dating of archaeology and history basically depends on various king lists, primarily the Egyptian king lists and also the uh, Sumerian king lists, and they give a wider span of chronology. 
And our chronology is very, very tight. And if you believe in a universal flood, and we do, then you have to believe that uh, everything in terms of culture, civilization, has to come after the Genesis flood. Because if the flood is universal, then all of mankind is wiped out, so all of civilization is wiped out. In fact, uh, we believe that basically all of the surface of the earth was radically transformed, so everything is gone, everything is destroyed. And if that's the case, then uh, we have a big issue in terms of how do we fit in all of the archaeology, all of the history, all of the ancient civilizations in this little tiny condensed time frame. So most of the books will be based on a more extended time frame. And I'm going to try and give some reasons why there's some evidence that help us to be able to stick closer to this uh, strict time frame. And we'll look at uh, physical evidence that's out there and some of the implications that we can draw from what you can see actually on the ground. In other words, some interpretive conclusions we can come to. And what I mean by that is I'm going to try and show that there's evidence all over the world. We'll get to this towards the end. Well, hopefully the middle. Uh, we'll get to evidence that shows that it didn't take a long time for civilization to develop, if you will, using that word. And there's really no such thing as primitive cultures. Primitive cultures are as a result of degeneration, not prior time development. Does that make sense? So that's one of the things that's that we're heading towards. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the nations. So we have to try, and not only the flood, but we have to find a place for uh, civilization to fall even after Babel. Because Babel tells us that humanity was one. Remember the stress of the passage. United. United in language. United in people. United in location. So after Babel, that, if that's the scattering, then it's at that point that people scatter and now you have the development of nations further than you have before Babel. So we have to put it within a little over a 300-year time frame up to the time of Abraham because some of these civilizations were in existence in that time, particularly the Sumerians. So... How do we fit the first 25 dynasties after the flood and before Babel? And another significant event is the Ice Age. And if we had more time, I could talk about why this is important. In fact, we said last time one of the main implications is God is sovereign over all things, every electron in the universe. And the Ice Age, I don't think, is just an accident. I think it's orchestrated because it facilitated, if you think scientifically, it, it facilitated the spreading of the nations because you'd have a lot of land bridges. And I, I don't want to get too much into that. But I think that would help. Um, the Ice Age doesn't end in that dotted line there. It, it keeps on, but it would begin after the flood. And there's reasons why the flood would have produced an ice age. In fact, there's no good explanation for ice age. In fact, currently there's several theories 
And one of the theories is there's been several, and all we see are the remnants of the last ice age. I think there was one ice age, and the flood explains it. We won't get into that. But anyway, how do we fit all of these cultures? Well, there's been a lot of work. Well, I shouldn't say a lot. Some work done by some that have tried to fit all of this. And I'm giving you the results of some of that work that began with Emmanuel Velikowski, a Russian uh, scholar, uh, and others that followed, like John Pilkey. He says the longevity of Noah's immediate family combined with what he calls a Gentile Pentecost of human government to make that family the most astounding aristocracy the world has ever known. Now, what he's getting at here is Noah and the three sons and their families would have been viewed, and even their immediate descendants, with special reverence. In fact, they would have been viewed somewhat godlike, because by the time of Babel, the ages of people were already diminishing. And before the flood, remember Noah, I can't remember exactly, 900 and some years, Shem, in fact, on my chart here, Shem lived almost, uh, those bars there represent the ages or the length of their lives. Shem almost lives past Abraham. Well, not past, but well into Abraham's life. So Shem is alive through many of the events that are recorded in the book of Genesis. And I put the birth of Abraham at 2135. And by the way, the chronology, Noah dies a year before Abraham is born. So even Noah. So these individuals would have been viewed, and rightfully so, because Noah, Shem, would have carried with them tremendous knowledge, tremendous experience. Just look at your lives, those of you that are more mature. How much except for (laughs) some. (laughs) Uh, Think of, uh, you know, what we are, those of us that are mature, are battling right now. If if I only had the energy, if I only had, you know, the the youth to go along with the experience that I've got now, well, think of 900 and some years of experience along with learning, and not only that, but genetically not having the... uh, degeneration that takes place as a result of uh, genetic uh, families propagating. So these people would have been viewed very, very special, and they would have carried whatever memory and perhaps written records of technology with them on the ark. They would have been the source of uh, all the knowledge that would be available at that time. So it doesn't require rethinking, rediscovering all the things that we think uh, because we're raised in an evolutionary culture. So Pilkey says, during this period, all but one of the 25 dynasties of the Sumerian king list and the first 12 dynasties of Egypt ran their course. In other words, you could fit them in this tight chronology is basically what he's saying. Shem outlived most of them. This era of the cohabitation of the earth by men who were virtual gods to the people that lived then. Alongside of men more obvi- of more obvious mortality parallels the future millennial kingdom when resurrected saints would coexist with mortal humanity in building the greatest civilization history has ever seen. 
So development doesn't necessarily take long time if you have all of the, the knowledge and the technology available, and that would have been available. So that's one of the things that we're going to uh, draw on. <clears throat> so uh, the earliest civilizations, archaeologically, and we wouldn't disagree, I don't think, with much of at least the development, even though we might disagree with some of the time frame, would be ancient Sumer, and just so you know where they're located, Fertile Crescent or Lower Iraq today area, Lower Tigris-Euphrates Valley, and Egypt. Those are the two very early cultures. Sum Sumerians, a lot of scholars believe they're probably a mixture, predominantly Hamitic peoples, and obviously uh, Egyptians are Hamitic. They're from Ham, Mitzrayim was the first son there. Others that have done some work, uh, David Down in some of his writings, the traditional chronology, the, the problem that he, that he sees, and we would probably, if we agree with him, would see as well, is the, the pharaohs in the Egyptian chronology are sequential. In other words, one pharaoh after another and then another pharaoh. But... There's some evidence that uh, there's probably some overlap, and the pharaohs are not sequential. And if you have some overlap, then it is possible to fit it in that tighter chronology. Is that everybody following me here? Okay. So that would put the Exodus at a different time frame than traditional time frames in terms of uh, the Egyptian pharaohs. So the Pharaoh, and I can't remember the name that was that Down would say was the Pharaoh of uh, of the Exodus. Is that the one? Okay, you familiar with this chronology? All right, good. So anyway, uh, need to kind of lay this foundation so you can see what basically I'm doing here. So if you have the Sumerians first 25 dynasties early. After Babel, which you'd put Babel 23, somewhere in there, 80, 87, somewhere after that. Uh, the blue line, by the way, those are the days of Peleg. In other words, that's the line that represents Peleg there. So his would start about 100 years after the flood, and he lived over 200 and some years, so about 300 years after the flood. So we're trying to fit all of these early civilizations in that time frame. So the first 12 dynasties, according to this chronology, would fit within that time frame. And then we have Abraham on the scene, and obviously Egypt is a full-blown entity at that time. So let's develop uh, the foundation for the nations with a little bit of that background and also to introduce us to the technology that we'll look at earlier. I'm going to do something similar to what we did with the languages. I think biblically, these are the kind of the parameters, if you will, the, the things that we need to take into account to properly and from a biblical worldview understand the place of nations in world history. And in God's plan, particularly, 
And so these are our parameters. And obviously, where do we start with the nations? Do we start in Genesis 10? What did we say last time about languages? Everything, you trace it back to Genesis 1. Creation, basically. I believe the nations are rooted in God's purposes all along, all the way to the creation mandate. And we could spend a lot of time on that. So it goes all the way back to Genesis 1.28. What is the primary responsibility of mankind? Genesis 1.28. Creation mandate, two elements of it. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So it's global in God's mentality, God's time frame. And the second is subdue and the sovereign word, rule. In other words, man is God's delegated uh, sovereign on earth. God delegated that to mankind. Now, this is before the fall. The fall had some effects on it. We'll get to that. But it's rooted in God's purposes that man be a ruler. And not just over his immediate family. The intent is that there will be families, extended families, in fact, entire ethnic groups that would come from Adam and Eve. And then after the flood, they would come after Noah and his family. And these families would uh, become large enough that there'd be nations. So you have ruling throughout these phases, I think, in the mind of God. So it's rooted in God's purposes as opposed to the evolutionary idea. We don't have evolution here. Okay. Secondly, the nations we saw in Genesis 11 is a result of God's judgment. That's where nations come. Again, not evolutionary processes, not men saying, well, let's just organize into this nation. They were organizing into not a nation or nations. They they were going the very opposite direction. Let's stay together as a collective humanity in violation of what God intended and what God revealed to Uh, Not only Adam, but uh, Noah as well. So nations, now this is, you won't find this in your world history book. Nations don't come as a result of God's judgment in their mind. But biblically, this is what God did. Now, he intended it all along, but because man rebelled against that collectively, he wanted globalism, he wanted to centralize power, And God knew that that would be destructive and to minimize man's evil, he would divide man up and form ultimately nations. So they're the result of God's judgment. And just to review again, we looked at this passage. He made from every man every nation of mankind, none excluded. To live on the face of the earth, having determined. Remember the sovereignty idea. God is sovereign over all things, including politics, nations. Yeah, need to be reminded of that, right? (laughs) He is sovereign, and he determined their appointed times. In other words, they exist only as long as he desires them to exist. And in fact, he's going to use them in that time frame that he has selected for each of them. 
And not only that, but their boundaries of their habitation is also determined. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him. The whole thrust of verse 27, God provides opportunity to know Him. It's one of the purposes of nations. That's the primary function, purpose of nations, is that people have opportunity to know God. Look for that one in your world history book. Okay? Uh, I won't get into the details there. If perhaps, there's not a perhaps there. It's kind of giving the indication that it's a fourth class condition there. So you could paraphrase it. Uh, if perhaps, million to one, <laughs> they might grope in the dark as if, you know, not seeing any anything and trying to figure out what, What's going on here? Uh, They might stumble over God by accident is the idea of what he's saying there. But anyway, let's go on here. Rooted in God's purposes. Secondly, the result of God's judgment. Still from Acts chapter 17, under the sovereignty of God. Nations are not independent, including the Germanys, including the Babylons, including the Irans, all of them. Under a sovereign God, not independent, not autonomous. Now that goes totally contrary to the thinking at Babel, and it goes contrary to most thinking of most nations. That they would seek God. I already talked about that. Fourthly, uh, the purpose from that Acts passage is to seek God. Not independent from him, not separate from him, but that individuals, and in fact nations collectively, Israel was to be the prototype example for all other nations. And their whole design and the whole law was designed to point them to God. And other nations could follow that pattern, purpose to seek God. Fifthly, Abrahamic covenant, chapter 12, blessed through Abraham, God desires to bless all nations. And in the Abrahamic covenant, you know that uh, it's conditioned on how nations treat the nation of Israel, whether they will be blessed or whether they will be cursed. And you can trace throughout history the history of nations based on how they treated the nation of Israel. Just one example, for example, the Spanish Empire was the world empire when Columbus was around, when our country was formed. And during the, that period of time, we have uh, persecution of Jews. In fact, I think some of them fled to the United States as a result of that. And I think Spain declined. That's just one example. You could use Germany as another example. Anyway, they're blessed or cursed It's not through their own materialistic pursuits. It's not because of strong economies. It's not because of man's endeavor, not because of anything materialistic. But nations are blessed based on their treatment of Israel. And it's unfortunate that we have an administration today that is, mm, well, anyway, (laughs) probably not blessing Israel. This is another important element in what God is doing with nations throughout history. He has used and is continuing to use today nations to discipline his people. 
Egypt would be an example where he developed his people. You could view it somewhat in the womb of Egypt. Exodus, they became an entity, uh, a nation. And then after that, you could trace different periods in the history of Israel. They're in the judges. What did God do? He allowed the surrounding nations to rise up until they repented and called for deliverance. And then he would raise up a judge and deliver them. But he used the nations to discipline them. Assyria, the northern kingdom, Babylon, the southern kingdom. And we are in what is called the times of the Gentiles, where Israel is still somewhat under God's discipline, awaiting a seven-year period in the future. So we have the times of the Gentiles where Israel is no longer prominent. Remember, under David and Solomon, Israel was the world empire. They were the power. They were prominent. They were prosperous. They were at peace. But because of idolatry, first degeneration, then idolatry, the Assyrians took the northern kingdom and then Babylon took the remaining southern kingdom. And then the Jewish people were under the Medo-Persians, giving some permission to return. And the Medo-Persians lasted only as long as God had determined, remember? And then we have the Greek empire and Jews were under that empire. In the first century, we have the New Testament under Roman domination. And what did one of some of the zealots want? Let's get out from under these Roman oppressors. We want a Messiah that will get us out. Jesus doesn't seem to do it, so let's reject him. And there's going to be something prophetically of a revived Roman Empire, if you will, that will continue to discipline God's people. These are called the times of the Gentiles. In Hebrew, goyim is the same. In some contexts, it'll be translated Gentiles, but it's the same word. It could be translated nations, word nations. Corresponding Greek word, ethnos, Gentiles or nations. So nations are prominent in God's plan. Yesterday, you only, you only had a history from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21, or 22, what is it, 21? Here's my world history from eternity to eternity. So, <laughs> All right. So we have the origin of Israel. And I see, this is Genesis, and from uh, the book of Exodus through uh, Judges, I would call the emergence of the nation. They're not fully a nation until they have the land, so that's Joshua. And Judges is kind of somewhat transitional to a kingdom era, and this is part of what God had planned. So here's a kind of a broad stroke of I should change that to world history, but biblical history works. And they declined, and we have a destruction, and probably beginning in 586, we have the times of the Gentiles. We are living in the times of the Gentiles. This is Jesus' phrase in Matthew 21, 24. It is still continuing. Israel is still living in the times of the Gentiles. There's one week of their history that is still future, where they will become, well, they will be converted, and then during the millennial kingdom, they will be prominent again. All right? And during the kingdom, Israel will be the primary nation amongst 
other nations. So they're blessed through Israel. Israel is disciplined by the nations. So it's not simply persecution. It's just not hardship. It's not only Holocaust. It's God working to discipline His people. Because He still has a plan for them. They're not abandoned. They're they're not forgotten. Uh, And we see evidence today that they're back in the land. During a church age, what is the gospel message? To go out to what? Well, in our context here, the nations, the ethnos. So the gospel is made available through the church, through the body of Christ, and should extend throughout the world, reaching nations. And uh, what this means is the nations are not rejected. Along with Israel, the gospel is available. And certainly it's available to Israel as well, including all of the nations. Interestingly, after the second coming, nations don't end. There's a part of the nation for the nations during the millennial kingdom. The separation of the sheep and the goats, Matthew chapter 25. Those are the nations, ethnos in in that context. So they have a part in the millennial kingdom. Does that make sense? And then there's a revolt at the end. Nations revolt. So God has a big plan that begins in Genesis 1.28, works itself out throughout history. The nations have a part in the millennial kingdom. And then that's the end, right? No? Okay, we, we still have the other end of eternity, right? Do the nations have a part in the eternal state? All right. Very good. He's read Revelation 21, or, yeah, 21, what is it, 24 to 26. But they will be glorified in eternity, which probably implies that uh, ethnicity, culture, perhaps has a place even in the eternal state. The whole idea of nations. Remember the whole passage there, the healing of the nations in that passage? If Revelation chapter 21 is the eternal state, so it even goes beyond what we would call world history. I see world history ending at the great white throne, and then we go into the eternal state, and everything's totally different. But the nations are still mentioned there. And Israel would be included, obviously, but glorified in eternity. So the nations are not destroyed. So there's this, these are the parameters of understanding nations. Okay, so here's your implication. Fourth implication, at Babel, another implication from Babel, is we have the beginning of what the Bible describes as the world system or the world. We add world system because it's a composite of all that we think of that is separate from from the Spirit or from, from Christ Himself. So Babel, we have the first collective rebellion organization against God. And we have from that the nations, and from that that permeates the nations, this idea, this world system idea. And very briefly, because I want to spend plenty of time on that other the evidence, Babylonianism concept. Now, this comes from the book of Revelation, Babylon, Babylon the Great. 
whole concept of Babylon as a more than a metaphor, uh, more of a kind of a descriptive attitude, mindset, worldview, Babylonianism, begins at Babel. So Babel is very important, which is the, the essence of it is the world system. And Babylonianism persists throughout history. And the reason the Lord inspired John to take that idea because the the major empire that has persecuted the Jews began with the Babylonians, destroyed them, nation of Israel totally destroyed, beginning of the times of the Gentiles, and it's persisted and it persists today. This idea, what is prominent today, the idea of let's organize collectively one world economics, one world politics, one world religion, one culture. There's always that urge in peoples. This will solve our problems if we just break away from boundaries, away from nationalism that creates all these tensions. Well, God restrains evil by breaking up into nations, but man has the urge to go back to Babel. And we know that the future... Uh, Babylonianism is destroyed in Revelation 17 and 18. So God began to reject Babylonianism at Babel and continues to let it work itself out through history, but it has its last days there. Nations continue, but a world idea where man is in charge uh, is destroyed and God deals with it through history. Anyway... There we go, our implications. This leads into the next portion. In fact, I thought I had another slide in there, but I guess that's all right. Um, Basically, let's look at another implication in terms of the technology. How, How did these cultures develop after Babel? Don Landis says, Ancient cultures all over the world show links of intelligence, in areas of architecture, religion, mathematical abilities, and astronomical understanding, and I would ask, add uh, in scientific technology. There's a lot of uh, commonality all over the world that shows very early, not only knowledge, but advanced technology that uh, was utilized very, very early. So it didn't require long periods of time for these cultures to develop from primitive to less primitive to somewhat advanced. Okay, so I've got a list here of elements, just kind of bullet points here in terms of the high technology, different evidence. Well, let's start with pre-flood artifacts. Now, if the flood was universal and as catastrophic and Steve Austin illustrated what a small, in comparison to a global situation, Mount St. Helens is. In fact, I like to describe Mount St. Helens as like a pimple on the face of the earth. But we saw the cataclysmic effects very rapidly. Short period of time, great cataclysm. Locally, think of the Genesis Flood Similar phenomenon globally. 
In other words, this kind of things going on all over the world, producing a massive worldwide flood that would in fact sweep up all the surfaces of continents. And and by the way, uh, I don't know if he made it clear. If he did, I missed it. But anyway, in the geological record, remember he mentioned at the Grand Canyon, the, the Grand Canyon is about a mile deep from the the, the surface to the to the river. Uh, I don't know a few hundred feet above the river is what's called the Great Unconformity. So, except for those 200 feet, about a mile worth of sediment, and it's all sedimentary rock. So it was either laid down by floodwater or the evolutionary idea. Long periods of wind and dust and settlement, that sort of thing. If all of that was laid down, down to that Cambrian level, in fact, pre-Cambrian level, the, the Cambrian would be the lowest level, all of that sediment, almost a mile of sediment, and by the way, the Grand Canyon, you see kind of a cut of the whole world. The whole world looks like that. Some of it is shallower, some of it is even deeper. All of that was laid down by the Genesis Flood. If it is that destructive, then you would not expect any structures to survive. You might have a few artifacts, and, and, and there's actually surprisingly few artifacts that, are, that have been found. But there have been some that are a little bit puzzling to some people. For example, that bell uh, found in West Virginia in a coal layer. Now, the traditional dating of these layers are they were laid down in millions of years, so how do you explain in a coal level, which would be several million years old, to find anything as sophisticated as this alloy that is an alloy that includes copper, zinc, tin, arsenic, iodine, and selenium? If it's in that layer, how did it get there? And if the flood was as destructive as we just described, then our conclusion is it has to have been preserved in the after the as a result of the Noahic flood. So it would be in one of those rock layers, which coal actually is, where coal is found. So that's kind of sophisticated technology. They have the ability to smelter and combine metals, separate them out and recombine them into something that is usable. And by the way, that bell has a clapper as well, a metal clapper. And then there's this little, very symmetrical, very round, cast iron cup-like implement that was found elsewhere in a coal mine in Oklahoma. And most of these artifacts have been found in coal mines. I think this is in, is there a London, Texas? Okay. I think this was found in London or nearby. An iron head. And it was in the strata that's supposed to be millions of years old. Okay, now the wooden part is petrified. So just a few pre-flood artifacts to not a whole lot, but at least support from our perspective, support our our viewpoint and give, you know, they're explainable from our worldview. They're not explainable from the traditional geological evolutionary worldview. Well, there's these pre-flood artifacts Artifacts, also sophisticated architecture all over the world, very sophisticated. 
And I'm going to try and illustrate how sophisticated uh, after I get to another category here. But let me just illustrate that first of all. Sophisticated architecture. There are structures like the Great Ziggurat at Ur. Now, this one is reconstructed, and you have a little idea of what it may have looked like in its day. And it was probably uh, higher than what you have there. But they exist, and there are, there's ev archaeological evidence of these kinds of structures all over the Mesopotamian area, or Iraq. So there are several of these ziggurats all over the world. The most famous are the pyramids of Egypt. And I'm going to try and illustrate what it would take to... I don't think we have the technology today to build a pyramid. What? <laughs> yeah, you can't do it on your cell phone there. <clears throat> Now, this is a step pyramid. Uh, in fact, I took mo most of these photographs myself. Not this one, but I think the rest of them I took uh, on a trip to Egypt, just, just for you. <laughs> uh, step pyramid, most consider it kind of a primitive pyramid, but it's not primitive at all. It, it has uh, quite sophistication to it. And it probably is more after the type of pyramid of the uh, Iraq ones or the Mesopotamian ones rather than the Egyptians. So this is an early one. This would have been in place in Abraham's day. Now I'm using the condensed time frame, all of these dates here. Okay. Uh, this is a photograph. This is what they were doing. It looked like they were repairing it when I was there. But it's more similar to those in Sumer. And I'll give you some dimensions there, 410 by 354 at the base. So these are massive. And these are cut bricks. They're not mud bricks. They're, they're uh, manufactured. So they had manufacturing skills. It has internal tunnels. How do you build a structure and keep it from collapsing? And they haven't collapsed over... Over 4,000 years, you can still go in there. About three and a half miles of tunnels inside, constructed. The more famous ones, the three pyramids at Giza, those are the famous ones. I'm going to come back to these, so we'll look at them. But just as an example, these are highly sophisticated. And I'm going to add to the sophistication as we talk about them. Uh, going back to the fourth dynasty, 2100, uh, one of those would have been standing, the... Uh, the one in the center would have been standing in the time of Abraham. But you find these all over. Uh, I also took a trip to Mexico just for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I got up this morning just for you guys. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, in Me uh, Just, what is it, about 30 miles north of Mexico City. There's a couple of pyramids that go together. There's one, a pyramid of the sun. This is a model of it. And then up at the right upper corner, there's a pyramid to the moon. And by the way, these are all aligned astronomically. So they had an understanding of astronomy and astrophysics. Uh, there's the pyramid of the sun. It's the third largest pyramid in the world. So it competes with many of the pyramids of Egypt in size at least, and sophistication. To give you a perspective, see the people on the top there? It's huge. And, of course, I had to hike up there. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking of you all the whole time. There's the Pyramid of the Sun, and when I was on the top there, I took this photograph of the Pyramid of the Moon to get a good perspective, because I knew you wanted a better perspective than ground level. I didn't go to Chichen Itza, but the, the point here is you see these kinds of structures all over the world. This is the Yucatan, Mayan Pyramid. Now, these are later. This is 600, 900 A.D., at least that's what the archaeologists say, but uh, technology persisted is the idea. Technology was passed on and persisted. And some of these later ones are not as sophisticated as some of those older ones. Another shot. These are interesting structures also in Egypt. I took that photograph. Hatshepsut. It's hard to pronounce. Obelisks. Now, just think about, could you build an obelisk? You'd have to cut it in one piece out of stone, transport it up the Nile, some kind of craft, unload it, stand it up in such a stable position that it has stood there for 4,000 years. Can you do that on your cell phone? There are 29 of these in Egypt, at least 29 that are uh, known. I think most of them are standing. But these kinds of structures also exist in Egypt, Peru, Sudan, Italy, India, France, Poland, Brazil, Assyria, obelisks, Turkey, even Israel. And there's even some in the United States, except we robbed them from Egypt. To give you a perspective, the top of the one that's standing would be the same size as this broken one on the ground. That gives you perspective of size there. Cut from one stone. Cut. It's not poured. It's cut. All right. So sophisticated architecture. And, and by the way, there are other structures. There are some underwater very large structures off of coasts. I can't remember all the different locations. Uh, astronomical knowledge. They, they had sophisticated astronomical knowledge. Stonehenge is probably the most famous. You know that it's set precisely to the solstice. And the stones themselves, they were, they were cut. They're 30 foot tall. And they were transported, uh, they believe, about, what is, I think, 60 miles or something. 25 tons. We have the capacity to lift something like that today, but uh, what technology did they have to lift, carry, move, set, and then set precisely? Okay. Here's an interesting structure, a Mayan observatory. It almost looks like an observatory at Chichen Itza. And they know that it's an observatory because the openings, I think one of them is at the top there, but I think there's some lower ones, the openings align with Venus at different points in its orbit. So they were able to track the orbits of planets and build structures such that they could see the, the tracking of astronomical bodies. And this is typical of a lot of these structures all over the world. Most of the pyramids are, are aligned astronomically as well. 
here's an interesting calendar. Uh, you have these what would have been more sophisticated towers than what are remaining here. They date them to 2,300 years in Peru. In fact, in Peru, there are several interesting structures. I'll show you some of them. But you see where the sun is poking between or before the first one there. Every month, you could track a month. This is a calendar, the beginning of every month when the sun is right in the middle of each of those towers. And I could talk about more. There's high-tech instruments. Here's one, Antikythera. That's an island in the Aegean. Here's a mechanism that was found in a first-century boat. So this dates to the time of Christ. It has 30-plus bronze gears. It can predict the movements of the sun, or they believe, the sun, the moon, the planets, and 12 signs of the zodiac. At least the article that I read on it said that. Okay, and if you also think about it, if peoples crossed oceans, they had the bit, the ability to track their location, so they understood spherical uh, trigonometry, and they would have understood uh, navigational principles and been able to track based on heavenly bodies. And here's an actual device that uh, apparently could do that. Uh, and there's many other devices that I could go through. The, the Egyptians were able to carve rock crystals into lenses, concave and convex lenses. And others were able to do other things as well. Well, high-tech knowledge. High-tech knowledge. Let's take a look at some of that. Arthur Kustens says... What is now fairly clearly established is that civilization, the arts and trades, organized city life with division of labor, social stratification, a leisure class, written records, so forth, began insofar as Middle East is concerned with these Sumerians, first known culture. That's sophisticated culture, and that's the first known civilization, uh, archaeology archaeologically and historically. So they had, remember yesterday I mentioned, if you think about the technology to form and live in cities, they had all the technology there, including a leisure class like we have today, written records, etc. While I was in Egypt, I visited uh, the temple that is dedicated to Hatshepsut. Now, she's the one of the only female pharaohs. She was one of the only female pharaohs. Uh, she is supposed to have been pictured in that middle part there. Can you see between? the? There's a figure on the right and a figure on the left. And something scratched out of the wall. Her immediate descendant, I uh, can't remember, was it a stepson or something that was the next pharaoh? He tried to obliterate her from history. So all of the monuments to her, are, or most of them, are scratched out. But on the left and the right, I think one of them, well, let's see, the one on the right, Horus Ra. Uh, what I want you to notice there, uh, you may not think of them as bright colors, but if you look at them... The reds, the yellows, and there's some blues in there, whites. 
they are not restored. Those are they believe those are original pigments or whatever they use. They don't even know. They've tried to analyze them. They have no idea how they produce these pigments. Wouldn't you like to paint your house just once and let it last for 4,000 years? We don't have the capability today to produce pigments that last that long. What technology did they have? Mm, Yeah, that's what they resort to. In some of uh, the structures on the ceilings, they have the sky, that representation of the sky and stars, bright blues. There aren't any bright blues there, but in the ceilings, bright blues with white stars. Probably the same white pigment that you see on the the skirt there on the right. Okay, just another. There's some blues. So yellows, whites, blues. Mummification, we really don't know the processes that they used. For mummification. Some of the mummies have persisted. In fact, the ones that they discover archaeology, archaeologically, uh, they still have preserved, I mean, obviously wrinkled, but <clears throat> looks better than most of you, right? <laughs> <laughs> this really is the last time I'll be up here. <laughs> okay. The pyramid on the left, uh, Khufu's pyramid, sometimes referred to as Cheops, about 2100. On this shortened, abbreviated time frame, Khafre, the one on the right. Uh, let's take a look at the Great Pyramid on the left there. But I want you to notice the limestone facing on the one on the right, because I'm going to refer to it. And that's all that remains. They believe that, uh, well, obviously, that all of these pyramids probably had a very smooth facing like what you see there. And a lot of the uh, rocks have been stolen and used for other structures later on throughout the years. I mean, what do you expect after 4,000 years? Hmm? Looters. Looters. Yeah, and certainly the, the tombs have been looted and that sort of thing. Okay. So we have uh, the Great Pyramid. It's aligned to the constellation Orion. The source that I saw, I, I saw a hundred or one million limestone blocks, but I did find a source that said three million. But either way, uh, I'm going to use that three million number. And if you want to cut it in in a third, then we'll, it's still impressive what I'm going to show you here. If you uh, Evaluate the the base of it. It's level to seven-eighths of an inch. Now, I talked to a couple of you that are civil engineers. Could you do that without survey equipment? No way. So they had some technology of some sort. I'm not saying they had survey equipment, but they had something at least with that capability to produce... And this is 13 acres. It's not a small plot. And if you do a simple calculation, all of you can do this to give you a perspective on the blocks. Well, let's see, what did I say? The blocks, two and a half by two and a half tons. The upper ones, some of the lower ones are a little bit bigger. They're 15 tons. A friend of mine from Ukraine, do you remember her? Uh, yeah. Lena? Yeah. Three million blocks. She was my guide in Egypt. 
Uh, if you just assume that they worked a six-day work week, 12 hours, all of you do that, right? And over the life, and I've kind of given uh, the Pharaoh a little bit of uh, extended life, 40 years, if you do that and you do the calculations. Now, keep in mind, they had to lay 20 blocks per hour to accomplish it within that time frame. 20 blocks. Now, you say, well, okay, that's impressive. Think about, I think the most laborious part, they had to cut every one of those stones at that rate or, or better. And that's after leveling the, the site. In other words, preparing the site. That is a, that's an impressive number. I, I don't know that we could do that. I don't, we can't, couldn't do that today. How did they cut each of those individual stones, transport them, in other words, load them on a boat or something? I don't know. They, maybe they flew them. I don't know. But they, <laughs> they transport them from the quarry down the Nile, or is it, well, it's up the Nile in Egypt. It's north. So up the Nile to the Cairo area, unload them off of a boat without damaging them. Maybe they fine cut them on site. I don't know. But at and then uh, move them to the site and then set them in place permanently such they'd last to today and do 20 of those per hour. And like I said, if you use just 1 million, just cut the 20 blocks in a third. So you're still, still talking about 6 blocks per hour to do all of that. These are not primitive people. Not, yeah, they were non-union. Yeah. <laughs> There's that uh, white limestone casing at the top. And let's take a close-up of another pyramid that we can walk up to. Uh, they didn't let me to walk up any of these pyramids. I was very disappointed. Uh, there's another one, and this one is uh, 17 miles south of Cairo, so I went down to take a look at it. I showed this is called the Bent Pyramid. This is an interesting one. It's got some... Very interesting features. It's very different from most of the others. It's the only one that's got these two different angle rises. But what I want you to notice is the corner there. Notice the broken off corner. And what I want you to notice, here's the corner. And notice the rocks, the individual rocks. There were, there were, these are limestone. Notice the, how finely cut they are. They're not poured in place. They're individual blocks. They're set. You can't slip a piece of paper between them. What did they use to cut these stones? They didn't use hammers and chisels. We don't know. And you can assume that the whole face, obviously, had these stones. So these are after placing, in the case of the Great Pyramid, after placing three million stones, now you face it with these very finely cut stones. And we have some interesting structures that have some interesting characteristics in Peru and just across the border in Bolivia there. I'm going to show you some structures in a site that's called Punca, Punku and so some other ones in a name I can't even pronounce and some other interesting structures as Nazca at Nazca. First of all, Puma Punku in Bolivia. There's a lot of these H stones 
these had to have been cut. If you put a straight edge on them, there's no gap. It's a perfect straight edge, These the faces of them. And then they have these indentations cut. They're not poured. They're all unique as well. They're all individually cut. So they didn't have a form and pour concrete into a form. And you have interesting designs. In fact, they have holes that... Ha- the best that we could say is they had to have been drilled with a drill. Some of them, some of the stones. And here's a large one, over 100 tons, the gate of the sun. That's one stone. How'd they move that? And these were moved, uh, I think they estimate over 60 miles. And it's aligned astronomically such that the sun comes through at different stages as well of the sun's orbit or the earth's orbit around the sun. At that other site, uh, I put an arrow there just to call attention to a 300-ton stone. Now, these are cut differently, but they're individual stones. And again, you you couldn't put a credit card between the stones. They're cut irregularly, but to fit. To give you a different perspective... Okay, there's a good size one, stone. And you're familiar with Easter Islands. What you normally just see is the top part, but notice that uh, there's more to those stones that go down deep. And at Nazca, there's these interesting figures that on the ground, you would not even know they exist. You only know if you fly over them. Because, for example, there's these different. Here's a hummingbird, 175 foot by 310 feet. Uh, they don't know why did they do these. Uh, were these for the gods to observe? Because you can't tell from the ground because of the size of them. And they have all kinds. The Nazca culture is believed to have existed from 500 BC to 500 AD. So, ancient culture. There's also many of these lines. You see some of them on the top. And one of the suggestions has been, because there's no explanation, aliens. These are alien land strips. But when uh, your worldview doesn't support your (laughs) evidence, come up with some odd, odd things. To give you a perspective, see the airplane there? This is a National Geographic photograph. Uh, See the airplane and the spider, 150 feet? On the ground, you you just see these mounds, but they extend very large. There's a monkey. There are dogs. Here's the monkey. There's birds. There's spiders. There's fish. There's shark. There's orcas. There's jaguars. There's lizards. There's humans. All in that Nazca plain, that Nazca area. This one is 310 feet across. So there's high technology knowledge. How did they produce them? Why did they produce them? Uh, We don't know. Or at least all the sources I looked at had no clue. The evidence presented here uh, concerning world maps. These are interesting. And I'm going to have to hurry through this. In fact, uh, what do we got, Robbie? Five minutes? Uh, Oh, Oh, okay. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, real quick then. The evidence presented by the ancient maps appear to suggest that in remote times... Be- oh, more time. Wow, I'll slow down. Yeah. I thought he was going to say that uh, you're minus an hour already. The evidence presented by the ancient maps appear to suggest that in remote times before the rise of any of the known cultures of a true civilization of a comparatively advanced sort, which either was localized in one area but had worldwide commerce, worldwide commerce, and was in a real sense a worldwide culture. He's talking about ancient cultures. And the emphasis of his quote basically is there's a worldwide exchange of technology ideas and that results in culture and commerce world maps they seem to have understood the circumference of the earth in other words they had mathematical skills there's some details of every continent that shows that not only did they have navigational skills but they had the ability to map areas, entire continents, an understanding of spherical trigonometry. Even in some of these maps, they show Antarctica shoreline. And you don't see, what you see is the shoreline of the ice cap today, the remaining ice cap. And underneath the ice cap is the actual shoreline of Antarctica, which is not evident unless you have special equipment, or unless the ice cap was not there. And we don't know. So Antarctica shoreline, remnants of glaciers on some of these maps. Here's probably one of the most famous ones that Hapgood, by the way, talks about in his writings. Now, the date there, 1513, is the date of this map. At least that's the date that they estimate, but it most certainly was based on ancient maps, and how ancient is not known. But uh, I don't know if you can make it out, but you can see part of North America. See the round part of Africa there? That's probably the clearest area. You can see Gibraltar there and Spain, and you also see Antarctica on the bottom and South America. You can even make out the Brazil area, the Amazon basin there. You see Texas? <laughs> of course. <laughs> anyway, there's others. Uh, there's also kind of this, and I've kind of been emphasizing this worldwide commonality, just kind of to summarize it again. You have the common pyramid architecture and even the obelisks that you see all over the world. So you have worldwide commonality. Commonality. Uh, you have flood uh, creation stories that are common in lots of cultures. Here's a Sumerian creation story, Sumerian tablet. But the Babylonians, Enuma Elish, uh, Egyptians had a creation story, the Greeks, Phoenicians. In other words, cultures remembered the story, either had oral traditions or maybe even written documents, and these are written documents recording 
those ancient traditions of a creation story. We have lots of flood stories. According to the evidence, at first they all generally believe in one creator who had made mankind. They also believed they had rebelled against him and were guilty of breaking his laws, kind of common features of all these stories. And then all the flood stories, there are over 150 flood traditions all over the world. Gilgamesh epic, the Babylonian one. Uh, Sumerians had one, Babylonians, Persians, Syrians, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy. Point being, all over the world, all right? China, India, Far East, obviously. North American Indians, South American Indians, Central American Indians, Cherokee, Aztecs, Mexico, Peru, Fiji Islands, Pacific Islands, Hawaii, and I ran out of slide space, so had to stop right there. Okay, biblical history is the foundation of all history, not secularism. We believe in a sovereign God who orchestrates historical events, and the Bible records the major events of world history. Babel is one of those events. Any questions, Robbie? Harmon, he's going to throw you out. <laughs> I thought I was under his wrath. All right, Herman had a question. Very simply, in their early maps, was there any indication of a flat world or a round world? Uh, yeah, I don't know the exact answer to that, but it, it appears that they, well, they, to make the maps, they had to have spherical trigonometry, an understanding of spherical. So I would think that they understood, obviously, that the Earth was spherical. Any other questions? Where is that map located now? Is it oh. on, on display any place? Mm, probably not. I, I don't know where it's located now. You don't now. know? Yeah. London I, Museum, maybe? It, it, I'm sure it is, yeah. yeah. But Hapgood's book is available. Yeah, I've got I've got a copy. I ordered mine off of Amazon probably 15 years ago. But you can probably, if it's not new, you can get a used copy, but they're out there. Right. And there's others. It's not the only one. How certain is that date for the Egyptian pyramids? Well, it depends on your which chronology you use. Most of them are dated further back, earlier. If you trust in this revised um, chronology, I don't know. Uh, I'd say it's probably pretty good. Do they know where the stones from those pyramids came from? There's some quarries down the Nile that they believe most of them came from. They're not local, for sure. Some of them may have been local, but not all of them. Uh, what is our confidence related to Genesis 5 and Genesis 10 with the uh, Masoretic text, uh, the numbers there? Oh, the numbers there? To Septuagint numbers or Samaritan Pentateuch or other sources? Well, I guess that's that's a textual criticism question and 
those are Masoretic text numbers. They, the Septuagint numbers do differ. And I don't know, what, what's your opinion on the... I, I haven't looked in that in a long time, so I'm not going to dig into that memory yeah. hole. Okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, mo- most conservatives trust the Masoretic numbers. Yeah, that, that's usually... They're pretty trustworthy. That's what I, right. would, I would go with. Um, if you can get access to one of these websites that publishes dissertations, I don't know if it's available that way, but Alan Ross did his uh, Ph.D. dissertation at Dallas on the Table of Nations, and I Xeroxed a copy like back in the Dark Ages when they had little gnomes that ran around and 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 and, and made the printout underneath. And um, but that's that that's worth looking at. He does a very good job there, and he probably has a lot of good information related to that in his commentary create on. Uh, on Genesis. All right, Charlie's got a. That was great, great work, Ray. Really do appreciate that. Yeah, I second that, uh, Ray. It is a great job. From your work with this high technology uh, in the um, early period. Uh, after the flood, what role do you think that the exponentially declining longevity had in the loss, perhaps, of the technology? Because that graph you showed of the tight chronology, um, by the time of Abraham, 2000 B.C. in there, you're having a total collapse of longevity in the human race. It's almost like a curtain of amnesia must have descended because people could no longer have oral mission, right. these people were dying off in five generations at a time. Yeah, and I, I think the archaeological and even if you look at the historical evidence, honestly, it does show throughout the Bible, you know, God works a work of grace and we mess it up. In other words, the fall, the flood, and there's always degeneration. There's never evolution. There's never evolution historically. So you always see that decline. So it's not surprising in that short period of time that you would, you'd see high technology right after Babel, and then you'd see a decline. You see that in the pyramids. Like I said, the the most sophisticated pyramids are real close to Babel in terms of the ones in Egypt, at least. And even the ones in the Mesopotamian, the Sumer areas, those are very sophisticated. And then they seem to die out in Mesopotamia. They persist all over the world. But the ones at Chichen Itza are nothing in comparison. They're still sophisticated, but nothing in comparison to the ones in Egypt. So you do see a decline of culture, decline of uh, technology that goes along with it. That is the pattern. Uh, high technology grace decline that's the biblical pattern and that's the pi- the pattern of history do we do we suppose that there was any angelic role in the technology being passed on to man like in the book of Enoch and the, some of the stuff that they talk about we don't really take historical maybe but mm, i don't know about technology passed on but uh, i think we can see some angelic participation uh, Steve Austin, what was it last night, mentioned the walls falling as possibly an earthquake. 
But if you read the passage preceding, uh, who did uh, Joshua see in that vision? He saw an angelic army. And my conclusion is the walls of Jericho fell not by an earthquake or some natural phenomenon. I think the walls were knocked down by that angelic army that you see preceding. In that immediate context, you have that vision and the assurance that, you know, that uh, if they trust the Lord, that they will. So I think angels played a part. <clears throat> but I don't know that we have angelic activity in lifting stones. Now, some have suggested giants, and giants are recorded in some of these periods of time where large human beings. Um, yeah, I don't know if we have enough evidence to, to conclude that. But I don't think angelic creatures were involved in the physical, necessarily techno- technological uh, advance. One in the back. Oh. You mentioned the possibility of land bridges as far as the, the Ice Age and all of that. Is there also a distinction to be made between the earth being divided and the people being scattered there as far as the continents? Are you, in other words, you're saying... In the days 10, of Peleg when the earth was divided. Yeah. No, I, that is a view that uh, it refers to geological dividing. But I think the best view, and we don't have enough data, but the, I think the best exegetical data supports the idea. Because of the context mainly, the next chapter is the scattering. I think the context, the best conclusion is that it's referring to the scattering, dividing of peoples in terms of them scattering. Okay, i got one last question here. I don't like worms. I don't want to open any cans. Um, but I'm just curious if you ever looked at the theories of having humans being back during those times, having been much larger, better bone structure, muscle mass, in regards to some of the, the ways of manufacturing or moving these large yes. objects and whether or not that holds any water or not. Yeah, I just mentioned that that is a possibility. Uh, we don't have a lot of evidence of that and mentioned in some of the secular writings they're mentioned in the Bible and remember and David encountered a giant and there's giants mentioned later on uh, it's a possibility that okay let, let, let me clarify this I want to bring this around to another point what's the largest stone in any of the pyramids underneath the pyramids I think the 15-ton, at least the Great Pyramid. That's nothing. In Herod's time, you've got a foundation stone that they measure, okay, under the foundation of the temple that is almost as long as this room and back, and they've measured it at 460 tons. Right. That far exceeds anything that was moved in the the, uh, pyramids, and this was moved with the technology they had when they were – building the foundation for uh, the remodeling of the uh, second temple during during Herod's time. So the, the ancients had that technology all the way up till at least the Roman period. Yeah, and those are cut stones. They're, they're, in, yeah. they're clearly and, and, eroding. And, and you can't slip a piece of paper in between them. They are right. cut and right. fit perfectly. It's just, just phenomenal. Yep. So, yeah, if, you right. just, if you just think about it, in other words, when you see, the, if you visit these sites and you just think of what would it have taken to build these things, just from an engineering perspective, I'm really impressed with it from an engineering perspective in terms of the technology. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Thanks, Ray. That okay. was tremendous. Really, Thanks. really good. Appreciate it. Okay, we'll take about a 25-minute break here and start up with our next session. Charlie will be back to talk about updates on what's going on in the climate change global warming mythology.